Well, I'm grateful again to be here and uh, to preach another message. And um, I'm kind of preaching a, a series, unbeknownst to most of you, because I haven't revealed it really yet. Um, uh, but last, last week, we talked about God's mission, or I guess two weeks ago, the last time we met on the Sunday evening, I talked about um, God's mission in this world. And we'll kind of build on this idea about God's mission and look at kind of different facets of what a person's mission is and who different people's missions are. And so uh, when we, t- we met last time, we said that God's mission in this world is to seek and to save the lost. And we specifically looked at the parable of the shepherd in Luke 15 who left his 99 sheep to go out and look for one lost sheep. Now, in the audience that Jesus was speaking to was the grumbling Pharisees and scribes. Um, I called those the spurious spiritual, which was a mouthful at that time. I guess it still is. <laughs> as well as the sinners and tax collectors, and I called those the seeking sinners. We're going to look a little bit more at the seeking sinners this week. Well, in response to the grumbling of the so-called righteous, Jesus told three parables uh, showing God's love for sinners. Now, the parable that we looked at last time was the parable of the lost sheep. There was a following parable of a woman who lost a coin. And then the final parable, much more well-known, is the parable of the prodigal son. And in all three, the father or the, the woman, or the shepherd, rejoices over the return of the coin, or the sheep, or the wayward son. And that last one particularly resonates with a lot of people, because it's a wayward son who went and squandered all of the father's wealth. But in the, all three, the message is clear, that God truly loves sinners who repent. You know, and he doesn't just sit and smile with satisfaction, but he rejoices. And it is God's mission to seek and to save the lost sheep. Well, if it's God's mission to seek and save the lost, then followers of God should embrace that mission. And it's a rescue mission and a mission of great importance. And today I'd like to talk about the mission of mankind. You know, maybe a, a catchier title would be Mission Impossible, or perhaps Mission Possible. I'm not really great at titles, but you remember that TV show, Mission Impossible, or maybe the the movies that kind of redid that more recent? You know, there was a phrase at the end of the message that the, you know, the agent usually got, you know, before it self-destructed, and it said something like this. It said, this mission, if you choose to accept it, is to, and it was always a different mission, Well, if God's mission is to seek and to save the lost, the mankind's mission could be summed up as this. Well, what can I do to be saved? Well, how can I be rescued? Now, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it states that the man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, but how does that man get to that stage? How can he complete that mission? And is it mission possible or is it mission impossible? Well, it depends on how one goes about achieving that mission. 
It's certainly impossible if a person doesn't need, know he needs to be rescued. But what if he does? Well, tonight we're going to look at an encounter that Jesus has with a young man who's often referred to as the rich young ruler who wants to be saved. He wants to enjoy God forever. But is seeking that goal enough in itself? Now, the episode in Jesus' life in his encounter with the rich young ruler is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels. But tonight we're going to be looking at Luke's account. So please turn to Luke 18. And we'll read in verses 18 through 24. And kind of a glimpse. We'll bounce through the other Gospels a little bit to kind of give a fuller idea of what this message was. So Luke 18, starting verse 18, says, A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Now, each person's mission, if God is going to save the lost sheep, each person's mission on the receiving end, or those that are being rescued, will be to enter the kingdom of God, or as the rich young ruler put it, is to inherit eternal life. Now, doing so consists of three key components of inheriting this eternal life. Well, first is finding the right path, and second is forsaking the right things. Thirdly, is following the right person. Finding the right path, forsaking the right things, and following the right person. And first, finding the right path, we see in verse 18, is a ruler questioned him saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now Luke said this man is a ruler. Nothing else is mentioned about what he rules over. He could be a ruler over people. He could be a ruler over lands. He could be ruler over a synagogue. Jesus encountered all of these in his life. Some were negative encounters, and some were positive encounters. So the title alone does not indicate to us this man's true view of Jesus, but it does show us he is in a position of respect and honor. People are accountable to this man in some regards. He has an influence And he also has authority. And the fact that he is young, as described in Matthew's account, shows that he has either inherited his position, or he's got the skills and the talents that have put him in a place of prominence so early in his life. But his occupation is less pertinent to the story or the encounter than the wealth and the prestige that comes along with it of being a ruler. This is a man of importance of much greater wealth than any of Jesus' 
companions, and he appears to come to Jesus with the right attitude. Now Mark states that the man came to Jesus and he knelt before him. In Luke and Mark's gospel, the, ref- the ruler refers to Jesus as good teacher. Certainly this man was not alone in his high opinion of Jesus because scripture says that people were amazed by Jesus because he was seen as having authority, not unlike, uh, not like the scribes. Another ruler who came to see Jesus, Nicodemus, who was described as a ruler of the Jews, said in John 3, 2, he said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So this young ruler comes to Jesus and he asks what he can do to inherit eternal life. I mean, this in itself is a fantastic question. You might hear people wanting to know what the meaning of life is or perhaps what their purpose in life is. But this question goes beyond this life and extends to the life Afterwards, well, what does he mean by eternal life? We see this idea in Daniel 12, uh, the first couple of verses in Daniel 12, where Daniel describes a future time of distress and of tribulation, and he says that those that are found in the book will be rescued. And he says that some of the dead will be awakened to everlasting life and others to everlasting contempt. This ruler wants everlasting life. And that's all that's really mentioned in the Old Testament about everlasting life. But Jesus, he goes on and he describes it further in different settings throughout his ministry. He said everlasting life is like partaking of springs of living water. He said it includes escaping judgment, not perishing, and ultimately enjoying the spiritual life and vitality that can only come from God. There are many things that can temporarily fill a person's void in their life or seek to meet some sort of need that people feel throughout their lives. Like Just like bread and water can temporarily fill a need for your hunger and your thirst, you will need to continually go back to that bread and water to meet those needs again and again. But Jesus says that what he offers is springs of water that continually nourish. And so this ruler was not just right, recognizing the fact that life goes on beyond this life. He's not just acknowledging an afterlife. And it's not about that in our culture either. If you look at any sort of poll, 75% of Americans believe that there is some sort of life after this one. But the rich young ruler had a correct understanding that that this life not only goes on, but beyond this life, but it can include an eternal and complete satisfaction from the creator and savior of this universe. And that's what it means to have eternal life. But the important thing is that he knew he didn't have it. He wanted it, and so he came to Jesus asking the right question. I have never had anybody come out of the blue and ask me 
what must I do to inherit eternal life? But here is this man at Jesus' feet, and it appears that he has found the right path to eternal life. Because for most people interested in evangelism, you know, that seems to be the biggest hurdle. Unlike those who are merrily skipping along the paths that inevitably lead nowhere, despite their claims of fulfillment and happiness, enlightenment, or whatever else, this man has found the right path to eternal life. There is no pre-evangelism that describes who God is or that there is an afterlife. He comes already armed with that knowledge and the correct understanding. So this man has found the right path to eternal life. He's asking the right question. It's as if Jesus is at the trailhead of this path, and maybe this man sees the path that, that's there, the eternal life, and what it has to offer. Maybe the, the path looks a little rough. Maybe it looks a little bumpy. Can't see around the bend and unsure where this path goes. And he says and asks, what do I need to take this journey? You know, what does it take to take this path? Good teacher, what is it that I need to do? Which leads us to the the second part and the second component is forsaking the right things. Well, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, if I were talking to this guy, I'd probably be a bit stunned and a little bit excited all at the same time, and I'd be wanting to tell him what to do. If he says, what do I need to do to find eternal life? You know, I'd, I'd probably stumble a little bit and, you know, like this present has just been dropped in my lap and, you know, start thinking of all the things that this guy needs to do. But Jesus doesn't do that. Because Jesus, he pauses and he asks a question. And he asks that question, why do you call me good? Now, Jesus says that goodness is only a characteristic that describes and pertains to God alone. And he responds this way as if to challenge the man to think, okay, if you think that I'm good, you're saying that I have something to say, you know, that I'm connected with God, and if you think I'm good and God is good, then what I have to say, you better listen to. Now, something that that Jesus is confirming that he is indeed God, you know, that might have some validity, but most likely Jesus is preparing the guy for his response, because he doesn't wait for, you know, the guy to say anything else. You know, in addition, Jesus puts uh, the ruler on the other side of the coin that says, if God alone is good, you, sir, are not good. Okay, so he continues, Jesus continues, he says, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, Honor your father and mother. He didn't go through all of them, but he went through half of them. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, what are you coming to me for? You know what to do. Do it. Okay, now many of you might be puzzled at at Jesus' statement. And when we talk about evangelism these days, this is not how we talk about reaching the lost. You know, if a person came to you and asked, what must I do to be saved? Just as the Philippian uh, jailer 
said to Paul and Barnabas, and we might say, believe in Jesus. We might say, pray a prayer. We might say a number of things other than what Jesus did. And it seems that this ruler genuinely desires to know how to have, you know, how, that he generally wants to have eternal life. Now, he might be wealthy and he might be respected, but he knows that he does not have eternal life right now. And so to the commandments, the man responds. He said, all these things I have kept from my youth. He says, of course I know them, and not only do I do them, but I have kept them. I have kept them ever since I was a little boy. I have forsaken the desire to commit adultery. I have not murdered. I have not stolen. I have not bared false witness. I have honored my father and mother. And he says, what am I missing? In Matthew's account, he says just that. He says, what is it that I'm lacking? And I think he generally, genuinely wants to know. You know, maybe in his eyes he hasn't murdered or committed adultery or stolen. But Jesus knows better. Anyone who's heard the Sermon of the Mount knows that the, these commandments are not so easy to keep. Because Jesus describes adultery as looking at a person with lust, not just committing a sexual act. He describes murder as saying you hate somebody in your heart not actually taking another's life. But most Jews, just like many people today, think that if they obey the Ten Commandments, they're doing a good job. But most people don't know that they're not obeying it. They're self-deceived. And a lot of people have some sort of other rules that they live their lives by in order to justify their behavior. Some of these rules might be written, some sort of religion that they follow, and some are unwritten. Many just come from nowhere in particular, but just come from some sort of inner compulsion that what I believe must be true. If you've ever done street evangelism and just talk to people, and you ask them, where did you come up with the ideas that you come up with? Like, you know, if I'm presenting the God of the Bible, and some people say, well, I don't really believe in that. Well, where, where did you come up with the ideas that you came from? I don't know. I just believe these things to be true. It's just somewhere inside. But even some people in our culture today that think that if they're actually following the Ten Commandments, then they're good. Some believe in karma or some, something else that says, what goes around comes around. If I do good, good will come back to me. And if I do bad, bad will come back to me. And some think that if they want to receive blessing, that they need to think it and speak it and just make it happen into existence. Now this ruler, he thought he was doing everything necessary to follow God. And again, he appears to be a genuine seeker. We would welcome this guy in our church. and We would try to get him the answers of all the questions that he seeks. But evangelistically, Jesus doesn't do what we would probably tend to do because he knows this man's heart. And Jesus knows that this man does not need to make a quick commitment and he does not need to sign a pledge card or walk an aisle or say a prayer. No, Jesus knows this man's heart, deception and all. And Jesus has compassion on him. In Mark's gospel, he says, looking at him, 
Jesus felt a love for him. And so he doesn't want this man to be, see, to be deceived, so he reveals a weakness. A weakness that exists for many, especially in our culture today. And when Jesus heard this, he said, one thing you still lack. He says, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. Matthew says, Jesus tells him that he lacks one thing, and if he wishes to be complete, he would go and sell his possessions and give it to the poor. Now, this would be huge for this man to do. Because selling everything meant giving away what he had inherited through generations in his family. Because land and everything that he possessed would have been passed down throughout his family. So that would be quite a big deal, not only to himself, but also to his family as well. And it would mean giving up something that he had depended on all his life and grew up with. And said, someday this is going to be yours. He probably has the notion that someday when he grows up, all of this is going to his children. And this request almost sounds unreasonable. I mean, Jesus, is this some sort of test? Is this for real? This man has a longing for eternal life. And Jesus says, this is the first step towards satisfying that longing. Now, please don't mistake me. This is not a one-size-fits-all remedy. And Jesus is not saying all anyone has to do to go to heaven is to sell their possessions and give it away. When I lived in San Diego, there was a communal group that would usually go to this verse and some verse in Acts to kind of uh, support that desire. Although they didn't say give it away, they said give it to the commune and we'll keep it, keep it together. But they said that that was some sort of way in order to inherit eternal life, and that this was a paradigm for people's lives. It isn't. Because Jesus spoke to different people in different ways about how to obtain eternal life. I'll give you two examples. In John 5.24, he says this to a group of uh, angry Jews. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And he does not come into judgment, but he has passed out of death into life. In John eleven twenty five through 26, Jesus said to her, this is Martha, this is when Lazarus died, he says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I mean, wow, belief sounds a lot easier than giving everything away, doesn't it? And so if it's, if it's just about belief, like he's telling these other two groups, why does Jesus tell this man what to do? Why? Because this is always the question. No one asks, what do I need to believe in order to be saved? It is always about doing something. And most of the time, doing something is the obstacle that needs to be overcome. But salvation is not about doing. It's about believing but really, for some, it's both. Okay, so for those of you that are confused, you know, just stick with me for a minute. Now, for many people, there can be a disconnect between belief and their way of life. So meaning their belief does not bear any sort of outward change. And you probably know many people who say that they believe in Jesus Christ, 
but their lives don't look like it at all. Following Jesus involves life change, and it involves the willingness to sacrifice whatever necessary to follow Jesus. And Jesus was getting to that truth for this man. In Luke 9.23, Jesus said that in order to save your life, a person must be first willing to sacrifice it. He must be willing to sacrifice everything because Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. When a person during Jesus' time was taking up their cross, they were headed to execution. A person must be willing to forsake everything for Christ. And Jesus said this in the context of talking about a disciple needing to count the cost in order to follow him. Now, both Mark and Matthew say that this man, the ruler, owned much property. Luke says he was extremely rich. Now, both of those generally go hand in hand, owning property and being rich. This man had authority, he was a ruler, and he had wealth, all at a young age. But he knows that he still lacks something that most people ignore. I mean, you have to at least give him some credit there. And he knows what it is that he's lacking, and he wants to try to take possession of it. So like I said, he has found the right path, but Jesus wants him to first sell everything. He wants the man to liquidate his assets and to just give it away. I mean, could you imagine doing that in your life right now? How many of you would be willing to do that? How many of you would find that freeing? I mean, you might honestly say, like, that would be awesome. I would just love to just give it away and get out beyond those trappings. But I bet a lot of you would would find that a little bit unnerving, especially if you have families. Now, all of us, though, we must be prepared to do that. Now, if you're like me, you're saying, I'm glad I didn't ask Jesus that specific question, (laughs) right? Because I did not have to liquidate my assets, but I didn't have many when I came to Christ. There's something about giving up what you have, what you've got. There's just something about that. Even if it's a little, it's all you've got. If it's a lot, you know, there's a lot more that you become attached to. But it's that feeling of holding on to possessions that really grips us tightly. You know, our possessions can possess us. And even as followers of Christ... Now, Jesus wasn't against having money. And so this isn't a manifesto showing that Jesus was a socialist and he wants everyone to sell their stuff and just give it away and redistribute it. But then again, Jesus is not against that either. Many in the early church did it. But the root of what Jesus was getting at is that money can be an idol. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24. He said, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. But even in the face of the gospel, money can muddy the waters. You know, in Matthew 13, in the parable of the soils, Jesus describes one soil as being unreceptive because of money. In Matthew 13, 22, he says, And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word. And the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth 
choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Jesus identified this man's master, and he wants him to get rid of it. He wants the man to tear down the altar of this other God that he's worshiping, that he's trusting in, and that he's found comfort in. That's the first step to eternal life, is to forsake everything for Jesus. That first step on that path is to forsake everything for Jesus. And Jesus tells his man this because he loves him. We've got to remember that. It's not just wealth, though. You know, no, one, no one can serve two masters, whatever that competing master might be. Now, a lawyer once asked the same exact question about inheriting eternal life in Luke 10 to Jesus. And Jesus was, his reply was similar but different. Now, Jesus responded first by asking him how the man read the law. He said, as a lawyer, what's your interpretation? And the man replied, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus had explained elsewhere that these two commandments sum up all of the commandments. So instead of going point by point like he does with the, the ruler, you know, the lawyer just summed up the commandments, and Jesus said, that's correct. He said, you have answered correctly, do this, and you will live. Now, that seems simple enough, right? You know, how do I enter heaven? Just love others. You know, say no to that other master of yours. Don't sin. I mean, these are just simple answers, right? Easy to do. Just don't sin. But it's not so simple. It's not so simple because the perception of our goodness clouds our judgment of ourselves. And oddly, we don't want to face what is keeping us from eternal life. That master might be a job, it might be a house, it might be a status or a reputation, you know, uh, you fill in the blank. If we are not willing to lose it for the sake of God's kingdom, we need to reevaluate our commitment to Christ. And if we are willing to lose it, then maybe we need to leverage that ability to greater serve God in whatever capacity he has called us to be. Now, the lawyer responded, he asked Jesus to define who his neighbor was, and as lawyers often like to do, you know, maybe get off on a technicality, Jesus responded by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan, and he totally expanded the Jews' interpretation of who their neighbor was. So instead of being neighborly to those who were kin and countrymen, it went beyond that to the people who they might have thought of as being unworthy. Just like Jesus had to expand the, the Pharisees and the scribes' view of who God rejoices after, the sinners and tax collectors, when they come to faith. Because <clears throat> when we narrowly define what we have to do in order to please God, or who we have to be loving towards, it can seem like we're walking that a path to eternal life. When it's real narrow and we're doing those few things, Seems like, yeah, I'm on my way. I'm doing everything that God's telling me to do. But what that is, is that's self-righteousness. And it's deceiving. And we all suffer from it from time to time. It's because we're always trying to redefine what we need to do or who we need to love. But God sent Jesus to show us and to explain to us what God meant 
by what he said to Abraham and to Moses and all the other Old Testament saints. So if you know you don't have eternal life, do you know what's keeping you from God? And as a follower of Christ, do you know what kept you from him? Each person must forsake the right things, and it's really only one thing that you're forsaking. It's yourself. You must deny yourself, your cravings, your longings, and you must submit them to Christ. That doesn't mean you abandon all your dreams, but that you'd be willing to if asked. Now, I hope I didn't belabor this point too long, but, but so many evangelistic messages, they do not include counting the cost. If somebody asks you, what must I do or, you know, to get eternal life, how many of you would first say, are you ready to give up everything and die for it? How many would have that as the next phrase out of their lips? Now, that message doesn't sell. That's not how Jesus always shared the gospel. So don't think the next time somebody asks you, if you, you know, if somebody presents that with you, that's the way you need to respond. But it was, Jesus did reply that way to those who seemed to be following him, but whose genuineness was unclear. And that's what it's like for this man. So Jesus challenges the rich young ruler to forsake the right thing, to sell all he has and to give it to the poor. Was it a test? Yes, it was a test. Remember, Abraham was tested to sacrifice his son, his only heir. And Abraham was willing to do it. And if God wanted this man to perhaps be wealthy again, he could have given it to him. Remember, Job had everything taken away from him, and then God blessed him doubly. But this man needed to first be willing to sacrifice something first. And then after that, Jesus adds one more step. He says, you need to follow the right person. And that's our third component, is following the right person. So finally, Jesus said, after you sell everything you have, come and follow me. Once a person comes to the realization that they don't want anything else in this life, and that nothing in this life can satisfy, they are then in a place to make Jesus their Lord and follow him. And this is what it's really about. And this is where belief then takes over. Because making a sacrifice is not enough in itself. You know, there's many people who subscribe to various religions who have forsaken their time, they've forsaken their money, their lifestyles, their freedoms, you know, even their lives, all for something that cannot grant eternal life. That if a person is seeking the path to eternal life, they must first be willing to sacrifice whatever necessary to get on that path but they will still need the right guide. And Jesus described himself as the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way to God, even though other ways may look similar, at least from the outside. Because eternal life is all about who you're following and not about what you were doing. And God set it up that way on purpose. He wanted to give the gift of Jesus Christ as a payment for people's sins. He wanted it to be about his making that way possible and not somebody earning it. As remember, Paul said in Romans 4, 4, he said, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, 
but as what is due. So if God granted eternal life based upon what a person did, that would mean God owes something. He owes a payment in response to that work that was done. And it wouldn't be a gift. But that is exactly what Jesus is. He's a gift of the way to eternal life. And we must be willing to follow him no matter what the cost. Now, was this ruler ready to follow Jesus? Well, Luke says, But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. He became sad. It's a deep sadness. Jesus had the same feeling in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. It's the same word, the same sadness as this grief that Jesus felt. The man was mourning the answer that he heard. Eternal life seemed so close to him. He was asking the one that would be able to grant it. But it was a price too high for him to pay. He had wealth and he had land, but the eternal life was something that he could not buy unless he was willing to exchange it all. Now Jesus told a parable about the kingdom of God being like a precious pearl that someone would be willing to pay all they had in order to get it. Now this man was not willing. Now we never knew this man's name, even though he was described in three of the Gospels. And he possessed a lot by many men's standards, but not enough. And it seems like such a trivial thing you know, when Jesus said in Mark 8, 36, he says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You know, the, the answer almost seems rhetorical. Nothing is worth a person's soul. <clears throat> you know, cheesy movies are made over that idea. Somebody sells their soul to the devil in order to become famous or rich. And then once they've obtained that richness, they realize that it's something that they really wish they hadn't sold, sold their soul for in the first place. I mean, it, it becomes almost cliche. If you asked a hundred people, you know, if we just got maybe a little bit more real, ask a hundred people, would you give your right eye for a million dollars? Nearly a hundred people would say no, because their eye is precious to them. Yet so many people throw away their souls in the same fashion that Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. They don't think about the consequences until it's too late to change the course. Now, many came to Jesus saying that they'd be willing to follow him, but they weren't willing to sacrifice everything. In an episode earlier in Luke 9, 57 through 62, we read, As they were going along the road, somebody said to him, said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus' words seemed harsh, 
But what was the response of, of his true disciples? So what about Levi or, or Matthew? In Luke 5, we read, After he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth, he said to him, Follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. Well, what about Simon Peter and his brother Andrew? In Mark 1, we read, As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. What about James and John? Going on a little further, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. When these men were asked to follow, they did. They left their businesses and trades to follow after Jesus. You know, was that reckless? You know, perhaps in a temporary kind of worldly mindset, they, it might have seemed that way, but they saw something greater in following Jesus. They heard him speak and they knew that they had to follow. And even after things got rough and many people who had followed Jesus began to turn away, these people that were referred to as Jesus' disciples, Jesus turned to his twelve, and this is in John 6, he said, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. These men got it. And Jesus says a few verses later in Luke that they'll be rewarded for it. But let's finish up this encounter. So back in Luke 18, And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus points out that it is extremely difficult for those that are self-reliant to give it all up and to follow Christ. And he just has an illustration. How easy is it for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? I mean, that's impossible, right? And that was shocking to the people. Because they who heard it, they said, well, then who can be saved? Because rich people at that time, especially Jews who were, uh, who were rich, they were considered blessed by God. And they were blessed materially by God. But if they can't get in, those who are finding God's favor, and all the other people who don't have that material blessing, or even those that might be listening in that camp of the sinners and tax collectors that always seem to be around when Jesus was speaking, if, if they say these guys can't get in, this guy who knows the right question, who's a ruler, an authority figure, if this guy can't get in, you know, what chance do we have? Now, some of you might be thinking, now, did Jesus just blow an evangelistic encounter? You think of all the people that Jesus would be able to close that deal. You know, but it's not about a formula. I mean, I presented three components of inheriting eternal life. And it, it seems like there's three things you need to do. But you can't just do them completely on your own. This is a rescue mission. 
And man is not his own savior. God is. In that last verse, Jesus said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. And this is the hope of the entire mission. It is what makes mankind's mission either mission impossible or mission possible. It is God. It is God who helps at each stage. The path of eternal life, it starts with knowing eternal life exists. So finding that right path. And then next comes forsaking the right thing, which we said was mainly yourself or the idol that you've set up. And finally, when all that's said and done, a person can truly follow the right person, who's Jesus. And it's not an easy road. It's not a smooth road. But it's a path that all are called to follow, and yet all are not able to travel. They may not find it. They may not want to get on it. They may, want to, may not want to follow Jesus as their guide. But this is the decision that every individual has to make. You know, each person who hears the gospel is offered up this chance. It's a road that he has to walk alone. But God will help those who are willing to walk it. And he will rejoice over those he is able to rescue in the end. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I mean, this rescue mission is just unmistakably wonderful. We know that your heart desires to save the lost. We know that you desire for each person to be saved. But we also know that there are things that we need to do. There are things that we need to believe. There are idols that we have set up in our hearts, Lord. And those need to be replaced by a sole mission of seeking the one who saves. I pray, Lord, for those that do not know that they have eternal life. You say in Scripture that you, we can know through your word eternal life through Christ Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that those who have accepted God's calling and who have been saved, whom God has rejoiced over, I pray that we continually take up our cross continually evaluate what idols we've set up. We continually try to make Christ our sole guide and our sole focus so that we may help others enter the kingdom of God. Lord, help us to submit our desires to your will. And may we reach out to you, Father, as you reach out to us. We praise you for the wonderful plan you have. We praise you, Lord, that we get to be a part of it. Lord, we thank you again, and it's in Christ's precious name we lift this up to you. Amen. You are dismissed.